At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to Daniel. Let's look at Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 today. Daniel chapter 4. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know um, like what you watch on TV or uh, where you're... Your kind of mind goes at different times, and along the way, there's um, one really, really great tool that's on the internet called uh, I'm Second. Uh, I'm Second is a uh, um, an opportunity for people that are a lot of times in, in the in the limelight that maybe are famous. Uh, gives them an opportunity to tell their story about how God stepped into their lives and how he he changed their lives. And today, as we're continuing our series. Uh, clash of culture. We've been looking at the book of Daniel, and today we see the narrative shift. It's shifting away from kind of Daniel being the narrative or another person being the narrative to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar now is the one that is telling the story in Daniel chapter 4. And as we come into Daniel chapter 4, it's kind of like uh, an episode of I Am Second. Now, I Am Second is always uh, kind of neat because uh, it begins, the clip begins with kind of a, a shocking uh, revelation of the person's story, and then it goes back and tells the backstory. Um, so I wanted to show you a quick clip of Brian Welch's story. This is the opening uh, scene of his I Am Second testimony. If you don't know who Brian Welch is, Brian Welch is the lead singer of the rock group Korn. I don't know if you, some younger people might like, yeah, corn, corn rocks. Well, I want to share with you his opening scene of his I Am Second video. So in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to accept Christ in front of everybody right now. Then I'm going to go home and snort drugs until I don't want to do them anymore. And that was my way of thinking. So I received Christ at the church. I went home neglected my daughter and put her in front of the TV. I remember I grabbed a $100 bill. I always used a $100 bill for some reason, pride or something. I chopped up my crystal meth, got it all smooth and powdery, and I snorted a big old line. And I held the bill and I looked up and I said, Jesus, if you're real like that pastor said, then you gotta take these drugs from me. Come into my life, come into my heart. And I just got quiet. I said, search me right now. Search my heart. And I stayed silent. And I said, you know I want to quit. You know I want to be a good dad for this kid. She lost her mother to drugs. And she's going to lose me if I don't quit. Amen. 
Yeah, if you listen to his whole story, it's been amazing. Uh, This story was, he did this video several years ago and just watching Brian's testimony of how, not he hasn't been perfect, but how he's been trying to walk out his faith from that moment. That moment when he met the Lord. And that moment for him was life-changing. It was life-altering. Because up until that moment, Brian talks about the high of being worshipped by people. By standing before a crowd and people chanting his name and how the rush was there and how that rush couldn't continue. And so he turned to drugs and how his life was unraveling right before his eyes. And then he meets Jesus. Jesus steps in and he saves his life. You know, in this series, we've been walking through and we've been looking at King Nebuchadnezzar, who at the time was the most powerful person in the world. And how we see he, he's been puffed up and he's been worshiping others, making others worship others. And Nebuchadnezzar's in a very dangerous position in his life. And then we come to begin chapter 4 and this is what we read. I want us to look at the first two verses first. King Nebuchadnezzar's writing and he says this. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth... Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, his mighty wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Did you catch that? This mighty king that was full of pride, who lived his whole life thinking all the world was about him, who even thought himself to be a king or a god himself, is now making a proclamation that the king of kings, the king that you and I serve, the god that you and I know, is the most high god. How in the world does that happen? This is like... A mighty transformation. You think Brian's transformation is pretty impressive, pretty important? This is on the same scale. This king, this powerful king who destroyed Jerusalem, who took Israel captive, makes this proclamation about the true and living God. As we've been walking through this series, we've, we've seen two truths that kind of keep coming back over and over and over again. The one truth that we've seen is that God shows that he's sovereign over all things. Right? God is the one that makes nations rise and fall. And God is the one that is allowing King Nebuchadnezzar, allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to go into Jerusalem, to destroy Jerusalem and take all of God's people captive. It wasn't by Nebuchadnezzar's power, but it was by the sovereignty of God. Second truth that we've seen is we've walked through Daniel and we've seen him and how he responds and how his buddies respond is that it is possible to live a life of faith and character in the midst of a hostile culture. We've seen that over and over and over again. But today I also want us to see another theme that's been weaving through this book is that we see God's relentless pursuit of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. God has been relentlessly pursuing the heart of this king through his pride, through his arrogance, through his own misunderstandings. God has been coming after him and he's coming after him and he's coming after him. And verses one and two remind us that now something has happened. 
that this prideful king is now sees God for who he really is. So how does he get there? Well, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see how God takes Nebuchadnezzar from this place of pride, from this place of arrogance, from this place of not needing anybody to now calling on God himself. The most powerful king that the world had known to this point begins sharing his testimony about how God led him to himself by humbling himself before the Lord. And today as we look at the passage, the the big takeaway for each one of us, the big action point for each one of us is that you and I should always humble ourselves before the true king. Humble ourselves before the true king. We see three ways and three steps that God takes Nebuchadnezzar to humble him. First, the step that he does is God warns him of his pride. So that's the truth for us, that we need to be aware that God warns us of our pride. Let's look with me in verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now we see this passage before we get to the point of of how God transformed Nebuchadnezzar's life, we see his state at the beginning of this. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at peace in my palace. I was at ease. It's as though Nebuchadnezzar had it really, really good. He was riding the highs of life. He didn't need anybody. He didn't need anything because he was at ease in his palace. Now remember, he had devoted his life 40 years of his reign to building up the Babylonian Empire. Now I'm told, through, and historians will tell you, the, the city of Babylon was a mighty, mighty fortress. It was a, uh, a fortress that had walls that stretched to the sky, uh, over 40-some miles of walls that encamped this great and mighty city. And inside of the city were these massive gardens that King Nebuchadnezzar had built that were beautiful. It was a place of lavishness. Some also called it like the Garden of Eden was the city of Babylon. Its beauty was remarkable. Its peace was known. It was a mighty, mighty empire. And Nebuchadnezzar had built it. Nebuchadnezzar, in his ease, if you read through this, you can see that he continues to say, I did this and I did this, I did this. And so all the things that he sees as he's at ease in his palace, were all testimonies of his own glory. So Nebuchadnezzar was a great leader. He was a mighty leader, but he was also an arrogant leader. He was swollen with pride and self-congratulations. And at the end of verse 4, we see one night he has this dream. From his place of rest, from his place of ease, where he didn't, anything he wanted, he got One night he has a terrible dream that shakes him to his core. He feels fear again. Remember last week we talked about that he was a man driven by fear? Well, now once again, fear steps into his life. He has a dream and he's afraid. And last last week we saw when, when Nebuchadnezzar went through a season of fear, instead of bringing his fear to God, it led him to rage against God. 
But now we see he's afraid again. This dream alarmed him so. And so he gathers all of the spiritual gurus of his day and asking them to tell him what his dream means. Then finally, he brings Daniel to interpret his dream. And he describes his dream to Daniel in verse 10. He says, The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and a fruit abundant, and it was a food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lob off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watcher, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Sounds like a troubling dream. Right? King Nebuchadnezzar sees this mighty tree that is growing and it's given food and protection and, and comfort to many. And then this tree gets lobbed, torn down by a watcher. A watcher that comes and destroys it and leaves it in ruin as a stump that just lays there. Troubled by this dream, he reaches out and Daniel comes, and as he retells him the dream, he obviously is frightened, and Daniel's kind of moved too. He's like, oh, I, you don't really want me to tell you what this dream means. You really don't want me to tell you what this dream means, king. And king's like, it's okay. Tell me, because I need to know. Daniel looks at the king, and he says, this is you. This is you. God is going to cut you down. Your pride and your arrogance and the way that you have lived, God is completely aware of it. And now, though you think that you're great, in just a little while, you're going to be cut down, you're going to be a stump, your mind's going to turn to that of an animal, and everything that you have is going to be taken away from you, so that you will know that God is the Most High God. God is telling King Nebuchadnezzar that he's going to come to the end of himself, and he's going to lose everything. God is trying to get King Nebuchadnezzar's attention. You see, in his life, not everything is okay. Though he may be prospering in the world, his soul is in danger that he doesn't even see, doesn't even recognize. 
It's kind of like this dream is like the, the warning light on your dashboard, like in your car. You know, some of those warning lights aren't that big of a deal, right? Some of them uh, are there to get your attention. They're there to say, hey, you have to do something. Your car is not working. It's not functioning like it's supposed to. So make sure you do something about it. Now, sometimes there's even a difference in the light colors. If it's yellow, it means like, hey, you probably need to take attention. Look at this. If it's red, you got to do something about it. Now, how many of you like to ignore those warning lights? Right? Like check engine. No, I'm not going to. You get like a little piece of black tape and you put it over it. You, know, you, can, you can avoid that for a while, right? And there are some of those warning lights. Like for me, I'll never forget my, our first winter moving back here. Um, we, I, I got the warning light that I needed some windshield washer fluid back in my, my car. And I'm like, oh, that's no big deal. It's no big thing. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get that sometime later. And you guys know driving in Michigan is very, very dangerous without windshield washer fluid, right? So I was driving, I was on my way to work one, one uh, morning and the cars in front of me are kicking up salt on my, my windshield and I'm like, oh, this isn't good and I'm trying to use my windshield wiper. They're not doing anything to it. And I turn the corner, you know where the corner is right, right, right where uh, 75 goes over like Big Beaver? You know that curve and the sun was coming up and I was turning around that corner and the sun came right into my eyes and my windshield is covered in salt. I can't see anything. I'm like, oh, Lord, please protect me now as I'm driving. I should, I, okay, I'll always listen to that warning light. Lord, just keep me safe now. So I pull over to the side and I have to wash my windshield. I had some water in the back. I should have listened to that warning light, right? Because I was really, I, I, that could have been a very, very dangerous situation, right? It, it was prompting me to telling me, you've got to do something. Things are not okay, and you may even have a car and, and the, the, the check engine light comes on. You're like, hey, that's no big deal. That's no big deal. Your car's telling you it's not okay. And whether we choose to ignore the warning signs or not, that's our choice. It is fully our choice to ignore or to heed the warning signs. But you know what? Eventually, inevitably, something's going to happen. The car cannot work forever. The car is going to break down if we don't heed the warnings of those signs. This is exactly where King Nebuchadnezzar is. He's at a place where he thinks everything's okay, everything's going all right. There's no worries, there's no problems. And then he has this dream, massive warning light. It's like all of the bells and whistles are going off and as he's riding the car of his life. Like, warning, 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 you're going the wrong way, turn around. Like, Siri's telling him, like, you're going the wrong way, king. Stop, repent of where you're doing and where you're at. But yet, he doesn't. Sometimes he thinks that he's going to be able to circumvent the system, that he, somehow he's going to be able to escape the judgment of God because pride had made him so blind. He had got up to the top of the ladder of success and thought no one could touch him. No one could hurt him. No one can harm him. Maybe your life, maybe you're not going through life right now where there's big warning lights. Maybe things are going smooth in your life right now. But take this lesson from King Nebuchadnezzar. Be careful not to think that God's grace in your life is his approval. 
you hear that? Don't think that God's grace in your life right now is his approval of the things that you're doing. It's his grace, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, everything was fine. And he was entering into, he was living in a season of God's grace. God was withholding his wrath from him so that hopefully he would turn to God. So many times we think that, that somehow like, hey, if life's going fine, God must be okay with my decisions. God must be okay with my sin. God's not okay with your sin. God knows your sin, he sees your sin, and he's disgusted with your sin. Don't think that just because you're not experiencing his wrath and his discipline at his time, that he doesn't see it and he doesn't care. When you live in that place, pride has puffed you up. And you're in a dangerous place. Brothers and sisters, God knows our hearts. God knows what we struggle with. God knows. And the call that he calls to each one of us is a life of repentance. This warning should have gone to the ears of Nebuchadnezzar and immediately he should have fell on his knees and he should have said, oh Lord, please do not allow that to happen to me. I see the error of my ways. I've been walking in this way. I've been walking in sin. I've been walking in pride. I've been walking in deception. I've been doing all of these things for myself, making a kingdom and a name for myself. Lord, forgive me. And he doesn't. See, It's a life of repentance that we're called to. You and I are constantly prone to wander. We're constantly prone to try and take control of our lives and think that we're better than we are. Instead of having a puffed up view of ourselves, we should have a humble view of ourselves, reminding ourselves that we are absolutely needy, that we are absolutely bankrupt apart from Christ. Repentance is getting off the throne of our lives and submitting ourselves to the lordship of Christ. And you, you may think in your life you're calling the shots. You may think that you're the one that's carrying, making the, the plans and you're, you're building a, a better future for yourself and you're doing this and you're doing that and you, you're all of this stuff. You're like, look at me, look at me. But really, it's just feeding into your pride. And instead we should say, look at what God has done. I'm just this humble servant. I'm a mess. I'm a terrible wreck. But look at what God is doing through my mess. Look how God is weaving his story of grace through the midst of my pain. God warns us of our pride. Second, want us to see that he judges us for our sins. This is, not a, this is not a popular message in our world today. We, we have people that walk through their lives thinking that the goal of their life is to live their best life now, right? You only live once. I gotta do right by, by what's best for, for me. Don't judge me. Don't oppress me with your rules. Don't oppress me with your religion. Don't oppress me with that stuff. I, I gotta be me. I gotta be true to myself, which is the story of the age, what your kids are growing up believing that they're being told 
over and over and over again. And they're forgetting the fact that there is a God who sits on the throne as a judge. And we all, each one of us, will have to give, stand before this God and give an account of our hearts and our lives and the works of our hands. And now, as we're going to read, Nebuchadnezzar is being called to this judgment. Look with me in verse 28. Verse 28 tells us all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that he dreamed, everything that he was worried about, came about exactly as God had wanted. Look at verse 29. He says, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Think about that. Again, he's chilling. Life's fine. He's walking on the roof of his palace. I don't think any of us can say that, right? I'm not, I'm not walking. I can't in the middle of the night walk on the roof of my palace. Right? I live in a house that's owned by a bank. <laughs> right? Like, again, so let's dive in. He's, he's walking on the roof of his palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words still were on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox." And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. Listen, you don't want the judgment of God to fall upon you. We don't want the judgment of God to fall upon us. King Nebuchadnezzar, in his arrogance, has brought low in an instant. God's judgment is severe for his sin. He said, hey, this is what's going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar, you can turn or you can burn. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I will not. So guess what? God is bringing him low. This mighty, mighty king who is the greatest king of history to this point is now has long, long hair like the feathers of an eagle and claws as fingernails. And he's eating like a dirty, filthy animal. God said, I will do this. After King Nebuchadnezzar's, look at, look at all the things that I've done. Look at all my might and all of my splendor. He's now driven to lose everything. Man, our pride can so make us so deceived. It can blind us so much. I remember as a, as a child, my, my parents had gone away for a, a vacation. When they came home, they brought like this big, huge, like, I don't know, it seemed like a 50-pound tub of like red licorice. I like, I like red licorice. I also like black licorice. I'm, I know I'm different. But they had brought this big tub of, of licorice home, and I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I love red licorice. And so they left it there on the counter, and they're like, 
trying to help us go through our daily allotment, right? They're like, okay, you get two pieces today, you get two pieces tomorrow, and all that, and so that's great. Well, I learned that when my parents weren't looking, that licorice was still on the counter, and there was a lot of licorice. So I'm like, I, I came up in my, my heart and my mind, I'm like, okay, never, no one's gonna ever know if I take a couple. So I go up into the kitchen, grab a couple, run back to my room, I eat those. I'm like, yeah, that's good. And then I go back up and I get a couple more, and I do this for a couple of days. And soon my parents begin to notice, wait a minute, something's happening to the licorice. Why is the licorice disappearing at an alarming rate? And so what do they do? They call all of us kids together and like, hey guys, who's eating the licorice? Mum's the word, right? No one's saying nothing. All my brothers and sisters are like, I'm not, I'm not. They look at me and they're like, Jeff, what about you? I'm like, I'm not. It's not me. It's, it's got, maybe it's the dog. I don't know. Someone's eating licorice, but it's not me. And so they're like, okay, all right. Please don't eat the licorice unless you ask for it, was their last decree. We're, all of us agreed. We shook our head and all this. So I go back to my room and I'm like, the beginning of my mastermind criminal career. <laughs> I'm like, it's that easy? It's that easy? I can do what I want, I can get what I want, and all I have to do is say I didn't do it? Oh man, this is easy. So next couple of days, I'm continuing to do the next, doing the thing, I'm grabbing a couple extra, a couple extra, a couple extra, and then one morning I wake up, and it was a full-on licorice bender. And I could not, I just, I grabbed like two handfuls full and I'm going to my bedroom and I'm like eating these things and I'm eating them, I'm eating them. It was like 30 minutes later, my mom comes down. She's like, someone's been eating the licorice. So we have a family summit all once again and they get us all together and like, who is eating the licorice? Who is going against our rules and eating the licorice? And to each of the kids, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. They come to me and they're like, Jeff, are you doing it? I'm like, I am not. It is not me. And it's almost as though when I said that God's timing is beautiful because just about that time there was this rumbling, rumbling inside of my stomach. I kid you not, this is a true story. I'm like, Mom, I don't feel so good. And I go to the bathroom, I throw up all over the place and guess what I throw up? Licorice, of course. Like I, my bender had just got me, got me in trouble. I couldn't hide. I couldn't lie anymore, right? I was caught literally red-handed, <laughs> right? I did, the, I did it, and I deserved to be punished, and I was punished. I don't even remember my punishment, but I remember, I remember my sin, right? I had lied. I deserve, like, I had violated my parents' rules. They were very, very clear and said, this is the boundaries for you. We want to give you licorice, but you know if you eat too much of it, you're going to get sick. So just follow our rules. And I, I could have lived getting my daily allotment of licorice forever. But yet, I violated it, and so I got cut off. No more licorice for you. Don't be fooled. God does not make empty threats. I think about... Santa Claus, right? He's making a list, he's checking it twice, he's gonna find out who's naughty or nice, right? And the whole purpose of that is, is that if you're naughty, you don't get Christmas gifts. I don't know anyone that has never received a Christmas gift. Right, you have this standard, Santa Claus, right? He's watching you, 
He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He's doing all of this stuff. And with, with this scale somehow, the, this nice scale or this naughty scale, that somehow if you do more nice than you do naughty, that you get gifts. I know some kids that are truly, truly naughty that should never, ever get gifts. And yet they still get gifts. Santa Claus has empty threats. You following me? God is not Santa Claus. God has clearly spoken. God has told us what is expected. Holiness is expected on your life. Perfection is expected in your life. And guess what? None of us can do it. None of us can be perfect. For the Bible says we all have sinned. We've all missed the mark. We're all worthy of God's judgment on his life. Where at a a moment's notice he should just say, you should die, you should die, you should die, you should die. Because of our sin. God says that the wages of our sin is death. That means not only like spiritual decay right now, but the reality of a judgment in eternity. Hell is a real place. There are people in hell right now that are wishing that they could cry out to you and say, hey, listen to what the Bible's saying. Like if you could just know, like the judgment of God is not something you want to walk through. And King Nebuchadnezzar is feeling it. Not his final destiny, but let Nebuchadnezzar's life be a warning to us today. In our arrogance and in our pride and in our self-sufficiency and in our, our, our grasp for control of life. What we're trying to do in all of those things is, is push God away, saying, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. And instead, our heart should be that of repentance. Oh, God, I need you. So as Nebuchadnezzar is walking through God's judgment, the third thing I want us to see, and we'll go through this quickly, is that he restores us by his grace. He restores us by his grace. Look at me in verse 34. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing as he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Holy cow. God's grace is amazing. Nebuchadnezzar didn't deserve it. But it wasn't until he turned his eyes from himself and fixed them on God that God's grace was there. If you still have breath in your lungs today, God is withholding his judgment 
and you're walking in his grace and you're walking in his mercy, but there comes an end to that. Let us with the breath that we have learn from King Nebuchadnezzar and turn to him. I love the story in the Old Testament when God sends his people out into the wilderness. He's actually on their way to the promised land and they're disobedient and all that. And they're, gripe, they're griping and they're complaining. Oh Lord, why did you bring us all the way out here? We had it better in Egypt when we were slaves. Why did you bring us all the way out here to die? And so God in his sovereignty and his beautiful uh, sense of humor sends poisonous snakes into the camp. And says, okay, you want them? All right, look, I'll, I'll show you. And so the snakes come in and, and they're biting God's people and they're dying because of the poisonous snakes. And the people start complaining and they're complaining even more. Oh God, why did you, Moses, why did you allow God to bring us out here so that we can die? And Moses goes to God and God's like, God, what are you doing? And God's like, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get a staff. I want you to put it in the middle of the camp and I want you to put a serpent on top of that. And then when people are bit by the snake, if they'll come to the middle of, 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 of town and they'll look to the snake and they'll believe, they will be healed. And so exactly what happens. People are bit by snakes, they come in and they look up and guess what? God saves them. They, if they refuse to look up, guess what? They die. You and I have been bitten by a poisonous snake and you and I are breathing breaths of death. But we have this promise in the New Testament where Jesus says, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw him into myself. You see, that Old Testament needing of people understanding, I'm bitten by a snake, and if something doesn't intervene, I'm going to die. It was a real reality that they felt in the moment that they had to come to look up for salvation, and they found it. That was, that was a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. If the Son of Man be lifted up, let me remind you of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus went to the cross, and paid the penalty that we deserve. He stepped in our place. All of our rebellion, all of our anger, all of our disregard for God, all of our unholiness, Jesus paid our penalty. We did the crime. We were the ones that broke the rules. And yet Jesus stepped in and took our punishment for us. And then Jesus died. And then he was raised from the dead. And now he lives. And if we come to consider Jesus and place our faith and trust in his work, we can be saved. We can be forgiven. The grace of God is there for you. I don't care what you've done. He doesn't care what you've done. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're doing right now and he knows what you're going to do. And yet he offers you this gift of grace. See, what's true in our own lives, in our humanity, we live in such a way that we want to receive grace for our dangers and our challenges and our disobedience, but we want everyone else in our lives to receive judgment. Right? When people do harmful things to us, we don't want them to get grace. We want the judgment to happen to them. Right, we want to get the grace. Like, uh, let me, Lord, let me do whatever I want to and, and give me grace. But if this person harms me, Lord, I wish you'd smite them. May, may like big boulders come down upon them. May, may they lose everything. May their names be written out of history. That's what we feel in our hearts. 
But yet God's grace is for everyone. We are not the determiners of what's, who is just and who is not. That's God's. Maybe you're here and that's not your challenge. Maybe, maybe you're here and your deep challenge when you come to passages like this is like, why is it that the wicked prosper? I'm, I'm trying to do everything. You're like, I'm trying to live a life for Christ. I'm living in this wicked world and it seems like every time I like try to get, take a step forward, I get knocked three steps back. God, I'm trying to live for you. I'm trying to trust you with my finances. I'm trying to trust you with my future. I'm trying to trust you with my family. And it feels like everything's falling apart. And then I look over here and this guy, he's doing whatever he wants. And he's got a, he's got a lake house. He's got extra cars. His family's are doing well. His kids are getting into prestigious schools. Like, God, what in the world? I know he doesn't love you and I love you. And yet he is wicked. You guys ever feel like that? Okay, you're like, no, this is, this is church. We're supposed to be holy no, you feel that way. I know you feel that way. Because I feel that way. Right? Why is it the wicked prosper? I love how Daniel writes, or David writes this in Psalm 37. He says, Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him and do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Man, there are some Nebuchadnezzars in your life. Right, there are people that look like they got it all together. Be mindful that doesn't, the outward things don't matter. It's our hearts that are humble before our God that is the most important thing. So church, let's stay humble. Let's stay humble before our king. Let's submit to him our lives. Not submit to him our plans, but let's submit to him our lives and say, Lord, here is my life. Use it. However, let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that you are a God that loves, but you're also a God that's just. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would help us today continue to be humbled by you. In this moment, God, if there's sin in our heart that has come to mind in ways that we're walking in pride or walking in disobedience, bring it to mind and help us to lay it before you. And we ask, God, that you step in and you forgive. Father, if there's someone that's here that doesn't know you, may today be the day that they look to you for salvation. But Father, you know our hearts and you know how we're prone to wander. And I pray today that in each one of our hearts, you'd bring us back to the place of humbleness before you. May we truly be able with our lives and with our voice and our, the true desires of our hearts to say, Lord, here am I, use me. Now, Father, as we continue to sing, continue to stir in our hearts and move us to be obedient, to follow you and trust you in whatever way that you're calling us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.